welcome to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now, podcasting from the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center in Chicagoland, here are your hosts, Ed Stetzer and Daniel Yang. Welcome to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast, where we're helping Christian leaders navigate and lead through the cultural issues of our day. My name's Daniel Yang, the director of the Church Multiplication Institute, and today we're talking to Tom Nelson. Tom's president of Made to Flourish, a network that seeks to empower pastors to lead churches that produce human flourishing for the common good. He served as senior pastor of Christ Community Church in Kansas City for over 30 years, and he's the author of several books, including Work Matters and The Economics of Neighborly Love. His latest is The Flourishing Pastor, Recovering the Lost Art of Shepherd Leadership. But before we talk to Tom, we want to remind you that if you're enjoying our interviews, leave us a review. Now let's go to Ed Setzer, Editor-in-Chief of Outreach Magazine and the incoming Dean at Talbot School of Theology. You know what they're doing on the reviews, though? They're saying Daniel Yang's the greatest. Wow. They are. They're leaving their reviews like that. And I, I feel it because he is the greatest. And so excited to have him in the conversation as well. So uh, Tom Nelson is uh, one that we, a lot of us have engaged around the kind of the work, life, faith, work balanced world and and written in that really uh, flourished, uh, pun intended, I guess, in that space with work matters and the economics of neighborly love. But right now we're kind of walking through a time when a lot of people feel uh, being a pastor has some uh, some challenges. I literally just left a wonderful Assemblies of God uh, megachurch a few minutes ago This is a, um, and, and talked with them, was meeting with their pastoral staff. And they're like, this has been some of the most challenging times we've ever led. This has been, um, you know, we feel that. And what is it? So so Tom has a new book called The Flourishing Pastor, Recovering the Lost Art of Shepherd Leadership, and he's going to unpack shepherd leadership for us uh, as well. So let's jump into our conversation as well. Um, I, I think, Tom, that most people would say these have been the most difficult years of leadership, just broadly. I mean, someone might have had a church crisis, a church split, a, mm-hmm. a difficult situation. But collectively, this has been probably three of the most challenging years of leadership uh, we actually see pastors leaving the ministry. We want to be careful with statistics because some of those statistics yeah. are, are made up. We want to be careful with those. Um, but we actually see statistics that are not made up where, you know, the Barna poll been looking at percentage of pastors say they're thinking about leaving, keeps going mm-hmm. up. Um, so so talk to us a little bit about some common ways that pastors get lost when following their callings, because I think a lot of pastors kind of feel lost at the moment. Yeah, well, again, it's great to be with you guys. Uh, let me just say a brief story because it's so real. I do think this last three years have been really, really hard. Uh, and we've had a free fall of uncertainty. It's hard to lead in that. We have catch-22s with congregational members. One of our longtime corporate worship pastors, uh, he's just going on sabbatical. He said to me Sunday, you know, if I wouldn't have had a, if I wouldn't have a sabbatical scheduled, I couldn't keep going on. Uh, and so I think that's a picture. I just want to give you a very, I'm in the trenches. Uh, I'm still a pastor uh, working in that context. So yes, I'm, I am I believe that very much. I, I think uh, there's ways we get lost easy. You know, we often talk about sheep getting lost among pastors, like lost sheep. You know, we deal with lost sheep. But I think the inconvenient truth is there's a lot of lost shepherds and we lose our way in many different ways. But I think there are three or four that are really compelling. I mentioned these. Uh, number one is I'm a bit contrarian here, and uh, maybe some of our listeners will say, hmm. But uh, I think one of the ways we get lost is to push too much on being a visionary pastor. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer helped us understand that visionary dreaming can be perilous to pride to a congregation. So uh, I, I think I believe we should give direction as leaders. But I think the vision idea that comes from Joel Barker and you know, that came into the church, this future we're going to create together, create some toxic places for pastors. I think one of the things I hear from 
really pastors have been successful with visionary after a while. Like, what's the new vision? I can, you know, go to Sinai and cast. So I think that the visionary can be really toxic at times. And I think we can lose our way with a vision uh, that is uh, culturally encoded and really not a biblical kingdom vision. So I think many people lose their way in a visionary paradigm. Another one is the celebrity, which we've heard a lot of that when the camera uh, kind of overtakes uh, your reach in the internet versus your character. Uh, you start uh, losing your way. And then I think another one, guys, that I see often is the Lone Ranger. I mean, we we were never meant to lead, love, and serve alone. We were created with community in mind. We lead in community. And yet one of the paradoxes, especially as a larger context, and I'm not enamored with larger places, you know, you can be messed up in a small place too. <laughs> There's something, right? I mean, you, you know, big frogs are in small and small ponds and big ponds. But I think you can kind of lose your way easy but one of the paradoxes, you're around so many people in a larger church context, and yet you're so deeply in, insular and isolated. So I think those three things I really see uh, in my years, I've served in parachurch 10 years and 34 years in a local church. Uh, and I see that tendency in my own life, but I do see that in many pastors. So their compass setting gets off, they get lost, it's slow, incremental, and they end up in a really dark place. So, so Tom, if I'm a pastor and I feel like I'm losing my calling, losing my way home. Like what are some of the guideposts that I should look for to find my way back? Yeah. I, the book is built on a text that I've been thinking about deeply for probably the first time I studied Hebrew way back in seminary. I ran into Psalm 78, 70 through 72. And it's the only book I've done that is built totally on those that text. So let me just briefly, in that text, I think is the main guidance for leadership for all the scripture, there are many great leadership texts, but I think if we miss Psalm 78, 70 through 72, we really miss the main framing. So those that's what I unpack. And here's what the text says. It's looking at David. Uh, it's a historical text looking back. It says, David also, so God also chose David a servant and took him from the sheepfolds, from the care of the ewes, the suckling lambs. He brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his own inheritance. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with skillful hands. There's a lot there. I just want to say that our guidepost is really the sense of understanding, first of all, God sovereignly chooses us. Uh, I think that's really, really important, God's sovereign action in that text. We don't necessarily choose to be a leader. We don't choose. We believe in God's sovereign calling. So he chooses David, and then he takes him from obscurity. And I think that's one of the things that we need to really think through is we need to embrace obscurity. One of the great gifts of our life is obscurity, not visibility. So David is taken from obscurity in the context of faithfulness, and then he's plucked to visibility. Many of us get on a stage of visibility before we have the time to really prepare ourselves and suffer and deepen our character. So I think obscurity is one thing we have to embrace. And then you'll notice he shepherds them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with skillful hands. So integrity of heart is the foundation of the Hebrew tome. It's a major word in the Old Testament. It's a picture of a whole life. And that we live and serve and love out of who we are and who we're becoming in Christ. Um, so that, and then the text obviously also says we have to have skills. So he shepherds them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with skillful hands. So I love that verse because it gives the paradigm of leadership, the foundation of leadership is integrity, and then the skillful hands flow out of that. So that gives you just a little bit of an idea of how I frame the leadership enterprise around Psalm 78. 70 through 72. God chooses us. We embrace his sovereignty. We embrace obscurity. That's where we're prepared. We're reluctant about visibility. We're careful with visibility, but we lead out of integrity <clears throat> and skill. So that's the framework I try to operate under. Yeah, that's a, it's a framework that obviously comes through in the book. And, and again, we want to encourage you to pick up the book as 
as well as we'll be walking through, talking through. It's uh, the flourishing pastor recovering the lost art, lost art of shepherd leadership. But here's the thing. So I've been like, I've been very, you know, steeped in, influenced by, learned from the church growth movement, you know, the capital C, capital G, capital right. M. And I remember that we need to move from shepherd to rancher. I remember that we've got to, uh, shepherding is a good thing, but you got to shepherd differently maybe, or maybe as you get into a larger church, this becomes the challenge. So it appears that shepherding has been, in most people's mind, associated with providing direct and immediate pastoral care to each person in your sphere of influence. And that's not what quite what you're saying. So how do I, I mean, your church is not, not 35 people. Right. So how do you recover the lost art of shepherd leadership in a church that, you know, most of our pastoring church leaders aren't pastoring churches as, as large as your church, but they are pastoring churches or serving on staff at churches that could be 200 or 500 where they can't do the shepherd like the parson might do in that, you know, rural church in the outside of England. So talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, well, I think the principle, Ed, is the, the paradigm, the primary paradigm of leadership biblically, I think, is the shepherding model. Um, and uh, how do you do that in a larger context? Well, you still shepherd, you still have a shepherd's heart, you still have the shepherd's scorecard, but obviously you delegate that through different layers of complexity. And you have to have many shepherds if you want to use that language. But to lose that shepherding heart, like it's just in my world, I'm shepherding staff. I'm shepherding uh, a board of elders. Yes, I have individual congregational care and shepherding, but the majority of my time as we've gotten larger is I'm still a shepherd. It's just I'm shepherding other leaders that need to be nourished in their soul and given direction and love and cared for. But the shepherding just changes its focus. That, I think, is the foundation. I think if we lose that, we're in trouble. But we have to develop and delegate uh, a lot of other shepherds who do that. And think about, you know, Jethro with Moses, classic example early in Torah, right? It's like very early on, there's this delegation of leadership. Jethro says, Moses, you can't do all that because complexity means not changing principle, but in terms of execution of that. So you got to have other people who do this. So I think of it that way. There's a delegation uh, of that shepherding stewardship, but all across the line, everybody needs to be shepherded. And obviously we need to be shepherded by the great shepherd first. That's why Psalm 23 is, I think, one of the most important leadership texts. Yeah. And you you do keep coming back to that as a recurring mm -hmm. theme. Again, the book is The Flourishing Pastor, Recovering the Lost Art of Shepherd Leadership. You talk some about the secret sauce. Matter of fact, I'll quote, I believe there's a secret sauce to pastoral wholeness, well-being, resiliency, effectiveness, and truthfulness. Now, I got to tell you, I have literally been talking about needing reservoirs of resilience and community of support going through this. I mean, I'm resonating with the message of the book. Tell us more about the secret sauce. Yeah, well, you know, I'm a little careful how I say that because I tend I tend not to want to be uh, engaging in hyperbole or false hope. But I do believe since I'm a Kansas City guy and there's a lot of barbecue sauce here, there is one of the areas that's the most important secret sauce. And, and I think that leadership fundamentally, and this is where uh, my paradigm uh, really presents itself. I think leadership is fundamentally followership over influence. Um, and so the secret sauce, I think, is a paradigmatic sauce that guides and, and animates my thoughts and my priorities and the ordering of my loves and my leadership enterprise. And that is to lead well, we must first be led well. I really, really believe that. I think that's all our life. And first, we're led by the great shepherd. So we're constantly being led and trained by the good shepherd. Uh, but it is a posture of learning and following, not just leading. And they, those who learn to follow well, lead well. Let me just give you an example. That's not only about Jesus, with other mentors. And if you've been familiar with Michael Polanyi, he profoundly transformed our understanding of knowing. 
And he made the case that much of our knowing is through tacit knowledge. And tacit knowledge is not propositional knowledge. The only way tacit knowledge is transferred, whether it's character, virtue, skill, whatever, is through a relationship with another person. In fact, that person can't always articulate exactly what that is, but they know it. It's like riding a bike, right? You just So I'm just saying that sense of mentorship, of learning to follow, learning to learn from others in relationship, in community, starts obviously with God himself, Jesus, the good shepherd, but other people around you that you're learning from enrich tacit knowledge. You can't have tacit knowledge apart from a relational mentoring context. So, I mean, Jesus trafficked in this, Paul trafficked in this, the early church understood that discipleship and apprenticeship is primarily not propositional. It has that component. It is deeply tacit. So, I mean, there's lots of levels here, theologically and epistemologically and practically, but that's why I say my paradigm of leadership is first learning to follow well and to follow Jesus first, of course, but to follow others. That we're constantly learning and growing in tacit knowledge through others. So, as a, But as a pastor, so who... Who do you seek to follow? Is that your fellow elders? Is that um, denominational community? Not Christian Arvins in the denomination. Who, I mean, yeah. Jesus, I'm, I'm 100% with you. Yeah. But yeah. cultivating yeah. the art yes. of following is not something we think of most pastors doing. But I think that, yeah, and I, and I think this is really a, a problem. Uh, yeah. it, it requires curiosity, right? When you follow well, you, you have a posture of curiosity, humility, and attentiveness. Those three are postures every day that you come into your place of work or service or love, that you have a posture of learning, of listening, of attentiveness, of curiosity, of following in the sense. So it is a posture that we approach life and service. Yes, I'm learning. I've learned from you, Ed. You know, it's like I learn from others who write and lead. I learn from those who have already gone to be with the Lord through reading. But, but it is a, a place where those who are closest to me I really have more of a mentoring relationship where I learn to follow. That could be a board member. It could be another professor. It could be another pastor. It could be a community of people. But I just want to say this is a posture of which we approach life. Uh, and um, that's where I think leadership really emerges. When we learn to follow well, we have this posture of curiosity, of attentiveness, uh, of listening well. So it may seem a bit contrarian, but I think that's what makes us really have the resilience, the insight, the humility to lead well over the long haul. You know, I was talking to another pastor a few weeks ago, mm -hmm. uh, and for all intents and purposes, his his church seems to be doing well. Um, physically, health-wise, he seems to be doing well, but he's not quite sure if he's flourishing. Um, and uh, can you give us an idea? I mean, flourish is a big theme of your ministry, Tom. Right. Like, what are the hallmarks of a pastor that's flourishing? I'm afraid I'm a little nervous that... By the time he's answering, all the pastors are going to be sending us their letters of resignation. Because no, I, no, I no, think, no, I don't like that. Yeah, I'm, going give, <laughs> I'm going to give you hope. So, yeah, because pastors uh, really feel like, am I, am I making yeah, it? We know because yeah. it's a new normal, and we're trying it to figure is. that out. Help us with that. It is. Well, I would go back. I think I learned this from someone a long time ago that what is most timeless is timely, and what is most timely is timeless. So let me just go to a biblical text in the Old Testament, in Genesis 17, that I think helps us understand flourishing. I mean, just what, what I would hope for each one of our listeners, what I would hope for my life, and it's in this order. God says to Abram, you know, the, the Abrahamic covenant, we often think of 12, 15, but we often miss 17, chapter 17. And I think it's the crescendo. So I'm to encourage our listeners to look closely at this, because I think it's one of these major texts that often we miss that give us a sense of the trajectory of flourishing. Yeah, obviously, it looks to Christ ultimately, to the power of the Spirit, to a community called the church, right? I mean, we these are all 
trajectories of the Old Testament, but the DNA is laid down there. God says to Abram, imagine this. When you think about this, God says to Abram, he's an old guy already. Uh, he says, I'm the Lord God Almighty. So God reveals himself right, to Abram, a sinful creature like us in grace. And then he gives two Hebrew imperatives. Walk before me and behold is the English translation. Literally, the first imperative is walk in my face. And the idea there is the foundation of flourishing is always, I how I say that. I think it's almost true. Uh, is intimacy first. So a flourishing human being is deeply intimate with God and others. It's a relational construct first. And what God is doing there in the Torah is God is going back to the garden, what we lost, right? In the garden of intimacy with God, intimacy with others, intimacy with creation before sin and death into the world. He says, I'm the Lord God Almighty. Now, what you lost in the garden, I'm going to give to you in grace. And obviously it's looking to Christ ultimately in the cross that makes that possible. But intimacy is number one. So if I wanted to evaluate or nourish a community of flourishing, I start with intimacy. The primary calling in life for any person who knows God or is embraced by his primary calling is a deeper sense of intimacy, not accomplishment. So intimacy is number one. Walk before me. Secondly, be whole. That's that integrity word. That's that tome word. Be whole. Be as I created you to be. And that's back to the garden, forward to the cross. So you're living an increasingly whole life. That doesn't mean it's perfect this side of heaven or sinless, but you are an integrate, integrated person. You are seamless. You don't have duplicity or compartmentalization. Your inner world is filled with harmony and seamlessness. That's integrity, integral. So walk before me and be whole. And then what does he say? Then I will bless you. I will give you fruitfulness. I will give you a new name, a new identity. So here's the flow of flourishing. When God says to Abraham, what you lost in the garden, I'm going to re recover ultimately in Christ. Walk before me, be whole, and I'm going to make your name great. So it flows like this. A flourishing person, pastor, leader in this order flows from intimacy, integrity to influence. Those three pieces, I think, are good frameworks for a trajectory of flourishing. Of course, that's in Christ, in the power of the Spirit, when we look at the New Testament. But Jesus came to recover that kind of life for us to be deep in intimacy, flourish in intimacy. Remember, he said, abide, me, abide with me. Intimacy, wholeness, or fruitfulness flows out of that influence. So that's how I would frame from a biblical text that a flourishing person is increasingly uh, a more intimate person, has deep intimacy with God and others in relationship, has increasing integrity and increasing influence, and it flows in that order. Fascinating and helpful. Um, so the you keep coming back to well, shepherd themes, which is you know kind of key to the book. Again, the title of the book is The yeah. Flourishing Pastor, Recovering the Lost Art of Shepherd Leadership. And of course, the lost art speaks to the cultural moment that we're in, I think, as well. Mm -hmm. You keep going back to the biblical text, the biblical example. You have a chapter where you talk about being apprenticed to Jesus. Yeah. And um, what what does a pastor look like who's being apprenticed to Jesus? If you know, we're pastors and church leaders. So so a listener here, she says, I want to be apprenticed. To Jesus, what does that look like? Well, what I think is real important there, and again, I'm going to go to a text because I think it's often missed. It's what I call the great imitation in Matthew 11, 28 through 30. And this is just absolutely amazing. We think about the cultural mandate in Genesis. We think about the great commandment, the great commission. Most pastors and leaders know that those are connecting threads. But what we're missing is Matthew 11. Is Matthew 11, 28 through 30, Jesus says the most amazing thing imaginable. The God of the universe has come to me. Notice the relational construct. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Now, Rabbi Jesus is going back to Genesis, right? Rest is Sabbath. I will give you the life God designed for you in creation. 
says, come to me and I will give you rest. And how do we experience that life God has for us in the garden that we lost in Jesus, right? That's a prank. Take my yoke and learn from me. And that's the picture of apprenticeship. Rabbis use the yoke language from an agrarian world. Think about a yoke. Think about a McDonald's golden arches upside down or the animals, how they plowed in the field, right? This is the picture. And rabbis use this as a training yoke. And it's all inclusive. It's a whole life where over time we become like the person we're yoked to. So this apprenticeship model is a very vital model. And Jesus says, take my yoke and learn from me for I am gentle and humble of heart and you'll find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy. My burden is light. So the idea there is that Jesus invites all who would follow him. Of course, the cross makes the yoke possible to enter his yoke. And what is required for the yoke is submission and obedience. It's not required brilliance or whatever. So I'm just saying that's where we find our transformation is when we come into that great invitation and we take his yoke and learn from him. And then we become like him over time. And that makes possible the ability to love our neighbors without the you know great invitation, the great... The great commandment is the great setup. Without the great invitation, the great commission is the great omission. Uh, we can't make disciples uh, of the world if we are not a disciple of Jesus. So the original word in Greek for discipleship historically was apprenticeship first, not or a student or a teacher. So disciples sometimes can be kind of diluted, but apprenticeship is an all holistic life connection to another person where we learn and become like them over time. So I just want to encourage people that are listening here. That's been the most important text for me. Uh, I think that I was missed early as the great invitation. And, and that's what it means to be apprentice. It's a lifelong obedience in the same direction as Eugene Peterson says, but it's deeply embedded in intimacy with Jesus first. And then we learn to live our life like Jesus would if he were us over time in all aspects of life in a comprehensive way. So that's the apprenticeship model. That I think the great invitation Jesus invites us to. As a quick summary, yeah, I think that, there's a lot there. Yeah, I think that the drain that a lot of pastors feel sometimes is whenever they're with people, they feel like they need to do the the mentoring or they need to do the disciple making. And, you know, they're wondering who's going to pour into me, who's going to, who can I apprentice from? And, I, and I, I, the whole idea of apprenticing Jesus, I think, is a phenomenal idea. And sometimes they need a mentor that has skin on, like in the right. moment. And so, like, what are your thoughts uh, for pastors who feel drained? They're always giving out. And they feel like they're in a season where they just need to be mentored themselves. Well, I think that, yes. And I think that's always the case. I mean, maybe we have a higher felt need right now. So it's like help. But um, that is the way we learn from day one and unlearn and relearn. So we all need those in our life. You think about Paul's language, like right in 2 Timothy uh, 2, like the things you've heard from me in the presence of others, these entrust the faithful people who will teach others also. So this is a picture of community. So I'd say a couple of things. One is, we need to immerse ourselves in community with a teachable attitude and, and look for those people around us already that we can learn from. That's a posture. So apprenticeship, sometimes I think it's such a formal idea or intimidating idea. I think it's just a relationship of love and connection, and we nourish those relationships. There'll be some people in our lives that we don't have proximity to. You know, like if I wanted to uh, learn from Ed, which I've learned a lot from him. And I'm sure, Daniel, I can learn a lot from you. You know, I would read what Ed wrote. Uh, I maybe have some a phone call with him or meet him at a conference we've had and maybe have a coffee with him and see the relational connection and what I can learn from him. But I found in my life that people emerge that I, that I cultivate. And I've had many living mentors in my life, also mentors who have mentored me through books. 
in profound ways. You know, C.S. Lewis and Bonhoeffer and Michael Polanyi. And so I think there are different aspects of mentoring. But I would say, first of all, we need a posture of dependence again and of curiosity and attentiveness. And then relational connection that we reach out to people without expectation. Oh, they're the great mentors and develop friendships. I had that with Dallas Willard. I've had that with several people God has given me over the years that have profoundly shaped my life. We become like who we spend time with. Uh, mm. So that's a lifelong uh, initiative, of, again, to, to recognize we need that. And and one of the surprises is sometimes we have a reciprocal relationship. There'll be things that we're learning and unlearning that someone else can say, hey, that that phrase, that idea, I'm going to follow that. That's really good. So it's a way of life. That's what I'm saying. And we all need it. And it's something we pursue, we pray for. We find it in an immediate community. We also find it in other people who are gifted or have been further down the road than we are. So I, I do, you mentioned Dallas Willard. I literally was thinking of Dallas Willard when you were talking because it'll be perfectly honest. You sound like Dallas Willard when you say these things. Well, we're, you know, shaped, and, by, we're shaped by the yeah, people we, we spend sure. time with. I mean, yeah. For sure. And, and that's one of the things I like about it. I, I think that most pastors listening to this podcast, if, let me let me say this, and this is not critical at all, if they've listened this far, would say that, um, you know, I really like that. Uh, I love, like, if I could get away and listen to Tom Nelson or Dallas Willard or, you know, someone, Richard Foster or whatever, I would really like the ability to have that person speaking to my life on a regular basis. But I got stuff to do. I got I got people mad at me. I got people looking at me to, to set direction, set vision. Even some of the things early on that you talked about, you know, vision, celebrity, and Lone Ranger, yeah. they want me to do it alone. They want me to cast the vision and they put me on a pedestal. I mean, that's the vision celebrity Lone Ranger is, is often caused by the various structures that we have. So, but I don't, I don't get you, you know, hanging around. I mean, I, mean, I want you to hang. I like Tom Nelson. I want you to hang around all day. So how do I, as a pastor or church leader, actually turn off whatever I need to turn off so that I can recover the lost art of shepherd leadership? Because I think everybody wants that. But it appears to me they're not willing to pay the the price to retool and to re-engage to get to that kind of healthy spiritual rhythm. What do, what do you am I am I off on that or is that no, you see you're, that as well? You're not at all. And that's a recalibration okay. in my own life. Uh yeah. that's a continual recalibration. But I would simply say that if we are living that kind of a frantic life, if we are uh, responding to all the dynamics rather than listening to God and and deepening our own life then that's, you know, if we use a dashboard, that's a yellow, if not a red light in our life. I mean, if that's, I mean, again, many of us get there. So I get, we need to have the courage uh, to say no to people, to build a healthy rhythm, to build rest and work, uh, to find someone else who's been more healthy and say, how did you do that? Uh, one, one of the questions, and this is, I work with lots of young residents. We have like a teaching hospital model or lots of young pastors come through our context. I love doing this. And one of the questions they asked me, you're 25, 28 year old just out of seminary. He said, "How are you? How have you and Liz been married 41 years and survived?" Okay, and it's not because we're great, okay, but it's that that sense like, what are the pieces? What are the hard decisions you made? What is the suffering? How have you cal- recalibrated in seasons of life in uh, difficult church context? How have you made it this far? And apart from the grace of God, that's a place where we say these are things that we have learned and unlearned that we've had to make tough decisions. Uh, that sometimes we disappoint people. Uh, but we've had the privilege of being in the same place 34 years. Can you imagine what a privilege? But yeah. we've had a lot of ups and downs, but we've had the courage and other people to say, hey, no, the biggest goal is to be like Jesus, not just to accomplish great things. I mean, I have to go back to say that. What's your primary compass setting? Who's your audience? What's your primary compass setting? If your audience is one, ultimately, 
that's the foundation. That's all of life. If you are, your compass setting is on true north, about intimacy with Jesus, intimacy with others, and not accomplishment first, then you will have to recalibrate because you will be pulled off by lots of other siren songs. Uh, mm -hmm. Your own heart, greed, pride, other people are going to want you to be someone you're not or do something. And so we could talk a lot about that, but that, that, and you need people speaking in your life that love you. So whether it's a counselor, a therapist, a good friend, I remember one of my business guys said to me, and we were first starting to write this like 15 years ago, I said, Tom, let the market come to you. Don't make the market happen. I thought this was great. So don't make it happen. Isn't that great? I mean, the tendency is like when things go well or books or brand, whatever you, and there's a place of, you know, not be passive, but like, that was the word I needed. Like, if you just try to make all this happen, you're going to get to a place of toxic burnout. Let the market come to you. So things like that, I'm just kind of rambling, but I, but I think that's really, really important. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and I'm, I'm thinking, you know, 34 years of pastoring uh, the same church, uh, you got a lot of young pastors or young leaders or relatively young pastors and leaders listening. And they're wondering like, can I make it to 30 years? And so right. I'd love for you to personalize it, Tom. Um, you know, was it always up and to the right for you? Like, did you feel like flourishing was always there? Did you get to a halfway mark where you had to pivot and make some changes in your personal life? Like, what was your personal journey to discovering flourishing in your own life? Sure. I mean, that's a great question. So, of course, uh, it's only the grace of God. Ultimately, I have an amazing wife. Um, and again, not always have that privilege of being married. But Liz and I have been partners. And Liz is a mental health professional. She's brilliant. Uh, she calls me on the carpet when I'm off uh, out of balance. <laughs> uh, we've navigated tough seasons. We've nav navigated suffering and loss. They've been really hard at a soul level. We've had other people help us, therapists and psychologists help us um, to kind of navigate our, our trauma and things like that. We've had other people that are there. We can never do this alone. Uh, and then I would say is that um, some of my greatest surprises have been my failures. You know, we haven't talked yet about uh, my big pivot 20 some years ago was what I stood before my congregation and confessed my pastoral malpractice. I've written on this, but like I realized that I was spending the majority of my time equipping God's people for the slimmest minority of their life because uh, I had a massive Sunday to Monday gap in my thinking. So I've had two big failures on spiritual formation. My understanding of formation was off. My understanding of discipleship and mission was off. So some of my failures, I'm saying expect failure, but failure is not the end. Um, and learn from your failures. That's another thing. We're all going to fail. We're all going to make mistakes. Uh, but that sounds maybe trite, but failure is one of our greatest formational aspects. And God uses our failures, I think, just because he wants to be glorified. So, yeah, we've not done it perfectly, um, but uh, we've had people around us. We haven't been isolated that loved us enough to speak truth into our life um, and uh, to say, hey, you're off here or you're heading to burnout or you know, there's pride. I remember I'll say one other thing. I remember doing a sermon one time and someone was sitting up in the front row. They come to me and says, you know, uh, can I just tell you something, Pastor? This is maybe 20 years ago. I said, you use the word I a lot. Why don't you try we? It's brilliant. Because again, there's a certain sense of they picked up some ego, some egocentric, what I had done. But I mean, these are things where I would say, uh, help us. Other people, we have to live in community. We have to live a transparent life. Larry Osborne talks about a glass house. Uh, we need to not hide and run. Uh, so anyway, there's a lot we could say there, but it's the grace of God. I have a great wife. I have a great team, um, but I've tried to recalibrate regularly and I've failed 
in a couple of areas big. And God's grace has allowed me to recalibrate. And God has used me in my failures in ways I never imagined, which I'm, I want to encourage the listeners. There are times you're going to blow it, but God can use that in amazing ways. And that's the story of my life. Yeah. Amen. You've been listening to Tom Nelson. Be sure to check out his new book, The Flourishing Pastor, Recovering the Lost Art of Shepherd Leadership. Thanks again for listening to the Sets of Church Leaders podcast. You can find more interviews like this one, as well as other great content for ministry leaders at churchleaders.com slash podcast. And again, if you found our conversation today helpful, we'd love for you to take a few moments, leave us a review that help other ministry leaders find us and benefit from our content. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in the next episode. You've been listening to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast. For more great interviews, as well as articles, videos, and free resources, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.